Chapter One of The Two Heroines of Plumplington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Two Heroines of Plumplington by Anthony Trollope. Chapter One The Two Girls. In the little town of Plumplington last year, just about this time of the year, it was in November, the ladies and gentlemen forming the Plumplington Society were much exercised as to the affairs of two young ladies. They were both the only daughters of two elderly gentlemen, well known and greatly respected in Plumplington. All the world may not know that Plumplington is the second town in Barsetshire, and though it sends no member to Parliament, as does Silverbridge, it has a population of over twenty thousand souls, and three separate banks. Of one of these, Mr. Greenmantle is the manager, and is reputed to have shares in the bank. At any rate, he is known to be a warm man." His daughter, Emily, is supposed to be the heiress of all he possesses, and has been regarded as a fitting match by many of the sons of the country gentlemen around. It was rumored a short time since that young Harry Gresham was likely to ask her hand in marriage, and Mr. Greenmantle was supposed at the time to have been very willing to entertain the idea. Whether Mr. Gresham has ever asked or not, Emily Greenmantle did not incline her ear that way, and it came out while the affair was being discussed in Plumplington circles that the young lady much preferred one Mr. Philip Hughes. Now Philip Hughes was a very promising young man, but was at the time no more than a cashier in her father's bank. It became known at once that Mr. Greenmantle was very angry. Mr. Greenmantle was a man who carried himself with a dignified and handsome demeanor, but he was one of whom those who knew him used to declare that it would be found very difficult to turn him from his purpose. It might not be possible that he should succeed with Harry Gresham, but it was considered out of the question that he should give his girl and his money to such a man as Philip Hughes. The other of these elderly gentlemen is Mr. Hickory Peppercorn. It cannot be said that Mr. Hickory Peppercorn had ever been put on a par with Mr. Greenmantle. No one could suppose that Mr. Peppercorn had ever sat down to dinner in company with Mr. and Miss Greenmantle. Neither did Mr. or Miss Peppercorn expect to be asked on the festive occasion of one of Mr. Greenmantle's dinners. But Miss Peppercorn was not unfrequently made welcome to Miss Greenmantle's five o'clock tea-table, and in many of the affairs of the town the two young ladies were seen associated together. They were both very active in the schools, and stood nearly equal in the good graces of old Dr. Freeborn. There was perhaps a little jealousy on this account in the bosom of Mr. Greenmantle, who was pervaded, perhaps, by an idea that Dr. Freeborn thought too much of himself. There never was a quarrel, as Mr. Greenmantle was a good churchman, but there was a jealousy. 
Mr. Greenmantle's family sank into insignificance if you look beyond his grandfather, but Dr. Freeborn could talk glibly of his ancestors in the time of Charles I. And it certainly was the fact that Dr. Freeborn would speak of the two young ladies in one and the same breath. Now, Mr. Hickory Peppercorn was in truth nearly as warm a man as his neighbor, and he was one who was specially proud of being warm. He was a foreman, or rather more than foreman, a kind of top sawyer in the brewery establishment of Messrs. Dubong and Company, a firm which has an establishment also in the town of Silverbridge. His position in the world may be described by declaring that he always wears a dark-colored tweed coat and trousers and a chimney-pot hat. It is almost impossible to say too much that is good of Mr. Peppercorn. His one great fault has been already designated. He was, and still is, very fond of his money. He does not talk much about it, but it is to be feared that it dwells too constantly on his mind. As a servant to the firm he is honesty and constancy itself. He is a man of such a nature that by means of his very presence all the partners can be allowed to go to bed if they wish it. And there is not a man in the establishment who does not know him to be good and true. He understands all the systems of brewing, and his very existence in the brewery is a proof that Messrs. Dubong and Company are prosperous. He has one daughter, Polly, to whom he is so thoroughly devoted that all the other girls in Plumplington envy her. If anything is to be done, Polly is asked to go to her father, and if Polly does go to her father, the thing is done. As far as money is concerned, it is not known that Mr. Peppercorn ever refused Polly anything. It is the pride of his heart that Polly shall be, at any rate, as well-dressed as Emily Greenmantle. In truth, nearly double as much is spent on her clothes, all of which Polly accepts without a word to show her pride. Her father does not say much, but now and again a sigh does escape him. Then it came out, as a blow to Plumplington, that Polly too had a lover. And the last person in Plumplington who heard the news was Mr. Peppercorn. It seemed from his demeanor when he first heard the tidings that he had not expected that any such accident would ever happen. And yet Polly Peppercorn was a very pretty, bright girl, of one and twenty, of whom the wonder was, if it was true, that she had never already had a lover. She looked to be the very girl for lovers, and she looked also to be one quite able to keep a lover in his place. Emily Greenmantle's lover was a two-months-old story when Polly's lover became known to the public. There was a young man in Barchester who came over on Thursdays dealing with Mr. Peppercorn for malt. He was a fine, stalwart young fellow, six feet one, with bright eyes and very light hair and whiskers, with a pair of shoulders which would think nothing of a sack of wheat, a hot temper, and a thoroughly good heart. It was known to all Plumplington that he had not a shilling in the world, and that he earned forty shillings a week from Messrs. Mealing's establishment at Dorchester. 
Men said of him that he was likely to do well in the world, but nobody thought that he would have the impudence to make up to Polly Peppercorn. But all the girls saw it, and many of the old women, and some even of the men, and at last Polly told him that if he had anything to say to her, he must say it to her father. "'And you mean to have him, then?' said Bessie Ralt, in surprise. Her lover was by at the moment, though not exactly within hearing of Bessie's question, but Polly, when she was alone with Bessie, spoke up her mind freely. "'Of course I mean to have him, if he pleases. What else?' "'You don't suppose I would go on with a young man like that and mean nothing? I hate such ways. "'But what will your father say?' "'Why shouldn't he like it? I heard papa say that he had but seven shillings sixpence a week when he first came to Dubong's. He got poor mamma to marry him, and he never was a good-looking man. "'But he had made some money. "'Jack has made no money as yet.' but he is a good-looking fellow, so they're quits. I believe that father would do anything for me, and when he knows that I mean it, he won't let me break my heart. But a week after that a change had come over the scene. Jack had gone to Mr. Hickory Peppercorn, and Mr. Peppercorn had given him a rough word or two. Jack had not borne the rough words well, and old Hickory, as he was called, had said in his wrath, "'Impudent cub! You've got nothing! Do you know what my girl will have?' "'I'd never asked.' "'You knew she was to have something.' "'I know nothing about it. I'm ready to take the rough and the smooth together. I'll marry the young lady and wait till you give her something.' Hickory couldn't turn him out on the spur of the moment, because there was business to be done but warned him not to go into his private house. "'If you speak another word to Polly, old as I am, I'll measure you across the back with my stick.' But Polly, who knew her father's temper, took care to keep out of her father's sight on that occasion. Polly, after that, began the battle in a fashion that had been invented by herself. No one heard the words that were spoken between her and her father, her father who had so idolized her, but it appeared to the people of Plumplington that Polly was holding her own. No disrespect was shown to her father. No word was heard from her mouth that was not affectionate, or at least decorous, but she took upon herself at once a certain lowering of her own social standing. She never drank tea with Emily Greenmantle or accosted her in the street with her old friendly manner. She was terribly humble to Dr. Freeborn, who, however, would not acknowledge her humility on any account. "'What's come over you?' said the doctor. "'Let me have none of your stage plays, or I shall take you and shake you.' "'You can shake me if you like it, Dr. Freeborn,' said Polly. "'But I know who I am and what my position is.' "'You are a determined young puss,' said the doctor. "'But I am not going to help you in opposing your own father.' Polly said not a word further, but looked very demure as the doctor took his departure. But Polly performed her greatest stroke in reference to a change in her dress. 
all her new silks that had been the pride of her father's heart were made to give way to old stuffed gowns people wondered where the old gowns which had not been seen for years had been stowed away it was the same on sundays as on mondays and tuesdays but the due gradation was kept between sundays and weekdays she was quite well enough dressed for a brewer's foreman's daughter on one day as on the other but neither on one day or on the other was she at all the polly peppercorn that plumplington had known for the last couple of years and there was not a word said about it but all plumplington knew that polly was fitting herself as regarded her outside garniture to be the wife of jack hollycomb with forty shillings a week and all plumplington said that she would carry her purpose and that hickory peppercorn would break down under the stress of the artillery brought to bear against him he could not put out her clothes for her or force her into wearing them as her mother might have done had her mother been living he could only tear his hair and grieve and swear to himself that under no such artillery as this would he give way his girl should never marry jack hollycomb he thought he knew his girl well enough to be sure that she would not marry without his consent she might make him very unhappy by wearing dowdy clothes but she would not quite break his heart in the meantime polly took care that her father should have no opportunity of measuring jack's back with the affairs of miss greenmantle much more ceremony was observed though i doubt whether there was more earnestness felt in the matter mr peppercorn was very much in earnest as was polly and jack hollycomb but peppercorn talked about it publicly and polly showed her purpose and jack exhibited the triumphant lover to all eyes mr greenmantle was as silent as death in respect to the great trouble that had come upon him he had spoken to no one on the subject except to the peccant lover and just a word or two to old dr freeborn there was no trouble in the town that did not reach dr freeborn's ears and mr greenmantle in spite of his little jealousy was no exception to the doctor he had said a word or two as to emily's bad behavior but in the stiffness of his back and the length of his face and the continual frown which was gathered on his brows he was eloquent to all the town peppercorn had no powers of looking as he looked the gloom of the bank was awful it was felt to be so by the two junior clerks or to pity most mr philip hughes and if mr greenmantle's demeanour was hard to bear down below within the bank what must it have been upstairs in the family sitting-room it was now at this time about the middle of november and with emily everything had been black and clouded for the last two months past polly's misfortune had only begun about the first of november the two young ladies had had their own ideas about their own young men from nearly the same date. Philip Hughes and Jack Hollycomb had pushed themselves into prominence about the same time, but Emily's trouble had declared itself six weeks before Polly had sent her young man to her father. 
The first scene which took place with Emily and Mr. Greenmantle, after young Hughes had declared himself, was very impressive. "'What is this, Emily?' "'What is what, papa?' "'A poor girl, when she is thus cross-questioned, hardly knows what to say.' One of the young men in the bank has been to me. There was in this a great slur intended. It was acknowledged by all Plumplington that Mr. Hughes was the cashier, and was hardly more fairly designated as one of the young men than would have been Mr. Greenmantle himself, unless in regard to age. Philip, I suppose, said Emily. Now Mr. Greenmantle had certainly led the way into this difficulty himself. He had been allured by some modesty in the young man's demeanor, or more probably by something pleasant in his manner, which had struck Emily also, to call him Philip. He had, as it were, shown a parental regard for him, and those who had best known Mr. Greenmantle had been sure that he would not forget his manifest good intentions toward the young man. As coming from Mr. Greenmantle, the use of the Christian name had been made, but certainly he had not intended that it should be taken up in this manner. There had been an ingratitude in it, which Mr. Greenmantle had felt very keenly. "'I would rather that you should call the young man Mr. Hughes in anything that you may have to say about him.' "'I thought you called him Philip, papa.' I shall never do so again, never. What is this that he has said to me? Can it be true? I suppose it is true, papa. You mean that you want to marry him? Yes, papa. Goodness gracious me! After this Emily remained silent for a while. Can you have realized the fact that the young man has nothing, literally nothing? What is a young lady to say when she is thus appealed to? She knew that, though the young man had nothing, she would have a considerable portion of her own. She was her father's only child. She had not cared for young Gresham, whereas she had cared for young Hughes. What would be all the world to her if she must marry a man she did not care for? That, she was resolved, she would not do. But what would all the world be to her if she were not allowed to marry the man she did love? And what good would it be to her to be the only daughter of a rich man if she were to be balked in this manner? She had thought it all over, assuming to herself perhaps greater privileges than she was entitled to expect. But Emily Greenmantle was somewhat differently circumstanced from Polly Peppercorn, Emily was afraid of her father's sternness, whereas Polly was not in the least afraid of her governor, as she was wont to call him. Old Hickory was, in a good-humoured way, afraid of Polly. Polly could order the things, in and about the house, very much after her own fashion. To tell the truth, Polly had but slight fear but that she would have her own way, and when she laid by her best silks she did not do it as a person does bid farewell to those treasures which are not to be seen again. They could be made to do very well for the future Mrs. Hollycombe. 
At any rate, like a Marlborough or a Wellington, she went into the battle thinking of victory and not of defeat. But Wellington was a long time before he had beaten the French, and Polly thought that there might be some trouble also for her. With Emily there was no prospect of ultimate victory. Mr. Greenmantle was a very stern man, who could look at his daughter as though he never meant to give way. And without saying a word he could make all Plumplington understand that such was to be the case. Poor Emmy, said the old doctor to his old wife, I'm afraid there's a bad time coming for her. He's a nasty cross old man, said the old woman. It always does take three generations to make a gentleman. For Mrs. Freeborn's ancestors had come from the time of James I. You and I had better understand each other, said Mr. Greenmantle, standing up with his back to the fireplace, and looking as though he were all poker from the top of his head to the heels of his boots. You cannot marry Mr. Philip Hughes. Emily said nothing, but turned her eyes down upon the ground. I don't suppose he thinks of doing so without money. He has never thought about money at all. Then what are you to live upon? Can you tell me that? He has two hundred and twenty pounds from the bank. Can you live upon that? Can you bring up a family? Emily blushed as she still looked upon the ground. I tell you fairly that he shall never have the spending of my money. If you mean to desert me in my old age, go. Papa, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't think it. Then Mr. Greenmantle looked as though he had uttered a clenching argument. You shouldn't think it. Now go away, Emily, and turn in your mind what I have said to you. End of chapter 1 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina